0: remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters returned from off the earth continually and after the end of the 150 days the waters were abated and the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat and the waters decreased continually until the tenth month and the tenth month. On the first day of the month were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of the forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and low in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off, so Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days, and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. Now as we get ready to prepare... For chapter number 8, and we get more into this, um, let's just sort of back up for just a moment. Answers in Genesis talks about this, and they say, The water rose to its highest level, covering the whole earth sometime between the 40th and 150th day. And the end of these 150 days was the 17th day of the seventh month. The ark rested on the mountains of Ararat on the 150th day. The springs of the great deep were shut off, and the rain above ceased, and the waters began continually receding. So God sustained Noah and his family to show us what the work of Christ does for the Christian. It is God's hand at this point that had not just given the instructions to Noah on how to build the ark, but God's hand had saved Noah, had sustained him, had supplied him with every need, had strengthened him during that time during the ark, and as well sanctifies the Christian while we are abiding in Christ. We remember that the ark is not just a picture of our salvation in Christ, but as well as the Christian life of abiding in Christ making sure that we ne- merely aren't just safe in the rain and then we hop off when we decide to, but rather that we learn to live and abide in the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so that within we can be used when the rain has ceased and we can see God use us, not just in the ark, but out of the ark. But we must learn them in their proper order. Spurgeon writes, Noah underwent burial to all the old things that he might come out into a new world. And even so we die in Christ that we may live with him. And so the ark is a beautiful picture of that death to life mentality of the Christian. We live because Christ died and we find that truly we are dead to sin, dead to the world, dead to self, yet nevertheless we live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So now we find this exchanged life, we find this blessed life where now Christ lives life in me, through me, for me, but we must be dependent upon Him By grace through faith. We find that this is all of the Christian life. This is what it's to look like. When it doesn't look like that, you can rest assured it's because we're doing so in the flesh. Now, we can do right things in the flesh, and it's still in the flesh, right? You can read your Bible in the flesh. You're not going to gain much out of it in the spirit, are you? No, because it's in the flesh. If you're reading it like a phone book or a dictionary, that's all you're going to get out of it, right? If you're praying, and you're praying in the flesh... And what I mean by that is you're praying and it's not according to God's will, there has not been sin cleansed from and, and, and uh, repented of, you're going to have a hard time praying, right? We see that we must do everything by the Spirit by abiding in Christ. Now as we get into chapter 8 tonight, we're going to see the uh, abating flood as it now begins to disappear and disperse because what God is doing is continuing to teach Noah to depend upon him because... Just because the rain is in it does not mean the storm is quite over, if that makes sense, right? The rain has stopped falling, but the water has still risen and risen and risen. It rained 40 days and 40 nights, but the water kept rising for 150 days, right? And now they're up on the top of the mountain of Ararat, and what they find is that now all that water's got to go elsewhere, right? Or else, y'all remember that movie, what was it, uh, Water World or something? Kevin Costner was in it, y'all remember that? Any, okay, anyways, it, it wasn't even before my time either, but it was kind of, anyways, water, the whole world turned into water, right? It, it was like Mad Max on water. Cammy's going to write this down in her book, I know it. Uh, <laughs> anyways, what Noah's coming into is a new world, the whole place is covered in water. Well, it's just not going to work that way, is it, right? You and I have not developed gills, Noah didn't develop gills, none of those things. The water had to go away. Why? Because what God was doing is a bigger picture of what He's going to do in the future. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And so this is a fresh start, not just for Noah and the animals, but ultimately for all of humanity. A new chance to receive God's mercy and grace. Now, let's get into verse number one. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. How many of y'all use that word assuaged a lot? I don't, but I think we ought to put that in our vocabulary. It makes you sound really smart, right? Now, here, notice the very first phrase of it, and God remembered Noah. Does this mean that God had forgotten Noah? No. How come you say that? Well, because God can't forget, can He? Why? Because He's God. If He could forget something, that means He can learn something. Has God ever learned? No. He knows all things, because if He could learn or if He could forget... That means he would not be all-knowing, and if he's not all-knowing, then he's not all-God. And we're in a whole lot of trouble, right? Notice how this works. So you say, what does this mean then? Notice this. we picked up on it in the past few weeks a little bit. In each of the passages that we broke down in in chapter 7, we'd have a chunk that was dealing with outside the ark. Then we'd have another chunk that was dealing with those inside the ark. Now, the last chunk that we dealt with in chapter 7, verses... 17-24, uh, through 24 dealt with outside of the ark. The destruction, the flood, and the water rising. So what is God doing now? Is He going, oh, I forgot I put that boat down there and all those people, they're in there, all the animals are hollering, help! The elephants, <laughs> none of that, right? No, God didn't forget them. No. Yeah, I know I, I got more tricks. That's about it though, but cost costs you a quarter, all right? God did not forget Noah as if he had lost him in his mind or lost him in time and space. Rather, what God is doing here in this passage is redirecting the focal point back into those in the ark who God is working through. To break it down in a much more morbid way, there's nothing else outside of the ark. The only thing outside of the ark at this point is dead. It has been... Killed, annihilated, drowned, Obliviated. That's all the adjectives I got. It's gone. Right? It is right? gone. So God is redirecting his attention back into the ark. Why? Because it's inside the ark that God's work will continue outside. The ones that are inside the ark is who God is going to use to bring about life once more when they get off the boat. Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, Japheth, their wives, and the Animals two by two, right? Except for the clean ones going in by the sevens and worship's going to take place. The establishment of the law is coming. The covenant will be in all these things, right? So we find that God is simply not going, oh, I forgot about Noah, but rather the idea of remembrance here. As Guzik puts this, this is an anthropomorphism. Now that means uh, um, anthropomorphism. Anthro means man. Uh, it's the idea of giving man-like Qualities to something that is a spirit that we can't quite. It's putting finite on infinite so we can understand. Now, God does this himself. He talks about this that He has the eyes and He has ears and hands and a mouth that speaks and all this sort of thing, right? So the Lord does this not for His benefit, but rather for our benefit, okay? Now, it's a non literal picture of God in human terms that we can understand. Certainly, God never forgot Noah sustaining him every day on the ark. But at this point, God again turned His active attention towards Noah. Noah is God's man in the theocratic kingdom of God, if you will. And this is the way in which God is operating. First, he had a man, Adam. His name literally meant man in him was all of humanity. But in that man, he disobeyed God, which means everyone that is in Adam, that's us, fell. Therefore, sin and death is passed down to us. And that's why we are all going to be born sinners and we're all going to be born to die. Right. Then who's next on the list? We go from Adam to. And then we've got Cain and Abel. Well, coin toss there. Cain kills Abel, don't he? But Cain's not the one that God's going to continue to work through. Why? Because he's a murderer. He's willfully sinned against God. He would not call upon God's name truly in worship and faith. So who's the next one? Well, Adam has a new one, right? And we go down the line. It goes and it tells us about the descendants it says, if Cain, uh, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him then there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And he follows his lineage in chapter 5. Who do we get to? A man named Noah. And remember that his name and the understanding of Noah's name was that it meant comfort or a coming comfort that the same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, right? Because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. Meaning, through Noah, rest will come, comfort will come, a new world will come. Now, ultimately, you and I, if we've read our Bible already, we know that Noah is still going to sin. As a matter of fact, just a couple chapters after the flood and after we're done getting through Noah, what do we have? The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, everyone has sinned so greatly that God disperses them through changing the languages and confounds and confuses them to where they will obey him and go throughout all the world. So we find that all throughout God has his man because who comes after that? Abram, then Isaac, then Jacob, and Joseph. And we find Moses and Aaron and Joshua and all the way down the line, ultimately to getting to not just God's man, but the God man, the promised seed, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the one foretold from long ago. So. In all-knowing, God does not forget His own. God not only makes covenants, but keeps them through to the end. And God is actively prosecuting the guilty, while also actively protecting the faithful in the ark. The goal is not merely to save Noah from the flood, but to do something with him afterward. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment tonight, and this is why we might not get through it, but I've got a few references I wanted to get through. Um, Turn with me briefly to Exodus chapter 2 for just a moment. We find here in, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered. We find it again in Exodus chapter 2, uh, just to help give you a recap. Chapter 1, uh, new kings show up, they forget who Joseph was, things get bad, they become slaves. God had already told Abraham that would happen already. Then Moses is born. Moses is supposed to be killed according to Egyptian law, but his parents trusted God. They made an ark. Remember, we talked about that a while back with the same word ark there was the same word for the the little basket that's used for Moses to save his life. Picturing beautifully how God is protecting and redeeming his people, sends him out. Moses' life is spared. Then we find Moses eventually grows up. He flees the million because he struck down an Egyptian but then we get to verse 23 of Exodus 22. and it came to pass in the process of time, that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed. Even when you read that, you kind of just, ah, right You sigh, you sighed by reason of the bondage, And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered. His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. Did God forget His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, because it was an unconditional everlasting covenant. That's why it's still being produced today. That's why Israel is the focal point of the end times because the rest of this covenant is going to be fulfilled. You say, well, they've already gotten their land. Well, not all of it have they. As a matter of fact, when Christ returns, that's when they will have all their land once more and it will be Peaceful. That's the goal of the Abrahamic covenant that God. We'll get all of that in about ten chapters or so, roughly. Right. So next year, <laughs> hear, the, hear the snickers already. But furthermore, we see this idea of God remembering in Psalm ninety-eight. I'll turn there uh, just just to help us out tonight, get us going. Uh, Psalm ninety-eight. Uh, it tells us this in verses one through three. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for He hath done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm. Notice, God is a spirit. Yet we find this once more, God describing Himself to show us who He is, that He is strong with His mighty right hand. The right hand is one of authority, one of power, one of position. He says, He hath gotten Him the victory. The Lord hath made known His salvation, His righteousness, hath He openly showed in the sight of the heathen. Meaning, all the heathen can come against God, and God, with one fell swoop, they've got nothing much like is what has happened in Genesis chapter 7 with the flood. Then verse 3, He hath remembered His mercy and His truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, this is why this is important. The reason why we worked through this with Exodus and we saw that He has not forgotten the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is because we see in Psalm 98, the rest of it, it is to come. This is why one day... Paul talks about it in Romans that one day the nation of Israel will be born again. When they see Christ return, the second coming, when He steps foot back on this earth, they will rejoice because they will finally see that Jesus was the promised seed given and promised of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is the same one that was preached and pictured all throughout the Old Testament and then revealed in the New Testament that it is Jesus the Christ. And so we find that God does not forget this idea of God remembering is now God is taking his attention from those outside of the boat that he was judging to those inside the boat that he is preserving and using to further his great big story of redemption. Now, as we move forward, Phillips writes, it is a touching and lovely way to bring before us God's loving and tender care for his servant." Indeed, God's compassionate concern extended to all the creatures that were in the ark. Now, I find this amazing. How many of y'all like spiders? Me either. Them things shouldn't have even been on the ark, in my opinion. But God knew better. They serve their purposes, I suppose. Not in my house, they don't. How about snakes? Anybody like snakes? You don't like those? They were on the ark, right? Anybody like Ants? No. Well, they're there too, right? Now these are some, at one point in time, especially, some, especially these ants, these are some very small animals, wouldn't you say? Yet God cared for them. God doesn't just care for Noah and then the seven others on the boat. He clearly cares about the animals. Why? Because He sent them on two by two to go and reproduce and repopulate the earth, replenish the earth. So what we find is that God cares about the details. matter of fact, Jesus talks about this. He says, right, the, the foxes are taken care of, the lilies are taken care of, uh, the, the sparrows are taken care of, right, the, the, the birds of the air, they want not, God takes care of them. We find God's tender care. When we find this phrase, God remembered Noah, it meaning not only did God not forget Noah, but God is now giving His full attention to the one that He's been preserving because He's got a purpose for Him. It says every living thing, all the cattle that was with Him in the ark, Everything that's in there, God cares for. God didn't care for it at this point. it would have died in the flood. You say, well, did God not care about the people that died in the flood? He did. The issue is that they would not care for God. As a matter of fact, they hated God. They rejected His message for hundreds of years. They refused to repent and believe. God cared an awful lot. That's why He was continuously merciful to them. He gave them 120 years. He gave them another seven days before the the ship has sailed literally, right? But notice the second part of this verse. Then it says, God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The other day when it stopped raining, I think it was Saturday, Sunday, I I don't even remember. It felt like 40 days, 40 nights. But I remember when it was done raining, I was able to finally go take the dog on a good walk again. And he was happy. I was sort of happy. By the end of it, not as happy, right? We go on this walk, but I remember what was so nice is feeling that wind start to come after the rain, right? Starts to dry it up. You get that nice rain smell. And you're watching it slowly dry the ground. Essentially, this is what God is doing here, but in a global scale. But it reminds us of the coolness it is a refreshment. And this is why this is important here. Hamilton puts this and he says, This remembrance moves God to send a wind over the earth. One Hebrew word translates wind and spirit. In Genesis 1-2, it is a spirit who hovers over the waters. Twice the divine ruah, or its breath is the idea, breath or spirit, uh, it, it, uh, encounters the waters. First restraining them, now evaporating them. So what we find here. You say, well, is this simply the Holy Spirit? I believe here that this is God and in instituting several things. Scientifically speaking, it seems that this is uh, starting the uh, current atmospheric and water cycles began due to the sudden change that the judgment had brought on, not only upon man, but upon all creation. God is using literally a breath or a wind to bring about the waters to decrease, to a, to abate off the face of the world. And as well, what He is doing is that the world is new. And so now we've got... The current water cycles that we have now, the current atmospheric conditions and things, everything before the flood was totally different, right? It's often been talked about perhaps like some sort of greenhouse uh, and all this sort of thing where it was a perfect condition where there was dew, uh, you didn't have to have the rain, all these things like we have now, right? Now you go without rain, right? We're in trouble, right? Come middle July, we're going to be seeing all the news reports about out west because it happens every year almost, these droughts. Right, And it's happening more and more, and it's happening globally. So we find that the need for this this cycle. Now, scientifically as well, this appears to bring about an ice age in many places, freezing certain geographical locations. Um, For some more details on that, I encourage you to uh, read up through Answers in Genesis. Grab one of their books. They're available online. You can get them on Amazon as well. Um, Or just check out some of their articles online. If you're cheap like me, just go on their website, and they got articles about the ice age. The ice age didn't happen tens of thousands of years ago. Rather, what it appears is that the conditions after the flood comes would have been quite perfect for it after the flood and the winds come together. Notice this. The reason why the other day when I was walking the dog and it felt so good is because when you take water and wind, it makes it a whole lot cooler, doesn't it? Right Now, if it's a 100-degree 100, 100 day and you've got a fan and you're sitting outside, the fan might keep your sweat Dry, <laughs> right? But it's still blowing hot air on you, isn't it? But notice this: you get one of those fancy, handy-dandy things from Walmart or Dollar Tree. I use this in Bible college because they, we, we had a, a rough, uh, sort of a rough building that they, or either that or they were cheap. They would never cut the air conditioning on. So I had a water bottle that had a fan on it. It was run just double A So I'd walk around campus, especially sitting in class, and I'd cut this fan on. Sit in the back. I did study, believe it or not. I'd have the fan on, and right? Because the the water goes on the face. The fan cools me off. Y'all think this is what I did all three years, right? And and so notice this. Notice this effect, this cooling effect. So obviously the world has changed immensely and rapidly, right? Now, as we move forward with this, verses 2 through 5, here's what we're going to see, that the water ceases to rise and the boat comes to rest. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, right? And the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters returned from off the earth continually and after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. The ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat and the waters were decreased continually until the 10th month and the 10th month on the first day of the month were the tops of the mountains seen. You see, that's a lot of dates. Why? Because as we talked about before, um, back in Genesis 7, verse 11, and the six hundred year of Noah's life, the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same date, right? God cared about the details. Why? Because He wants us to know this is a historical event. Uh, the Lord, uh, through Noah, is writing this stuff down to know. Why? For God's good? No, for our good, so that we know to trust the Lord that this has happened. Now, I want to give you sort of a, a lengthy... A quote here from Sorensen that deals with this a little bit. I'm check my time here. All right, we're still good. We're rolling. The word translated as abated has the sense of decreased or lowered. In other words, after 150 days, the waters were receding. The implication is that for 150 days, the waters of the flood were full force upon the earth. Um, I remember, let me pause there for a moment. I remember if you've ever seen a flood, whether it be a river or something, even after the rain has stopped, there's still that time that that now they can predict when it's going to crest, right? It's going to hit that high point. When we were in Danville, we lived in the apartments downtown, and right downtown was the, the Dan River. And up here in, in like Stewart area, up here in the mountains, you got the Dan River as well, but in one place, it's about like that wide, right? Down there, it's, you know, 50 yards wide. So what would happen though is when the rain would come, uh, the uh, often the, the streets on either side of the river, even though these were main, main streets that everyone used, um, one of them being 58, is that they would flood. And I remember that they would talk about this at different heights and, and when it would come. And you you know, I, of course, I'm curious. I'm going to go down, I'm going to look and all that. We lived on the second floor, so we were fine. But, but you'd go and you look and you see, because you're so curious about this, but it takes time for it to make it there. And so it took 150 days for this, and now they're starting to finally decrease. But the weight of the water here, the weight of the water, the hydrological implications of the waters rolling across the face of the planet by the massive earthquakes, and then the immense winds, the draining action as the water began to drain off the continents into newly depressed ocean basins, and it was catastrophic. Not only was the face of the planet essentially wiped clean, it was categorically restructured. An entirely new world would face Noah when he emerged. As we talked about earlier in Genesis 7, we've got the formation of continents, we've got the formation of places like uh, the Grand Canyon, we've got um, you know, uh, the, the Meadows of Dan used to be a valley and now it's a mountain, right? We find all these sorts of things, for example. Everything that was high is low, everything that's low is high. The whole world has shifted utterly and completely. And God has done this to bring about judgment, but as well as it has caused a new creation. And it's pointing us ultimately to the, the future. Now with this, we find the word in verse 4, and the ark rested. Rested. Now, this is going to be important here. I want to park it here for just a moment tonight. This gets pretty interesting. This gets pretty pretty fun and exciting here. Phillips writes about this. Notice verse 4. And the ark rested. What does rested mean? Rested. That's right. You guys got it. It ain't moving anymore. Before the ark is doing this, right? It's, it's still floating around. Water's still up. Now it's it's parked, right? Anchors away. It's going nowhere. It says ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat let me first go ahead and get this out of the way there are articles online that you can find right now that tell you that they have found Noah's ark I want you to know probably not (laughs) if you want to see Noah's ark your best bet is to pay Ken Ham and his cohort of merry men and go to Kentucky and see the ark all right that's probably your best bet Now, the reason why I say it is because we're talking about thousands of years of decay, uh, all these things, and the sheer fact of we're not talking about one singular mountain of Ararat. We're talking about an entire mountain range that covers uh, what today would be modern Turkey and Asia Minor. We're talking about a lot of ground, right? And so we would like to say it, but guess what? We think that finding remnants of a boat on top of a mountain would solidify the fact that there was a global flood. The Bible already has done that. Because this is either God's Word or it's not. So, we don't need to find the ark to prove the ark happened. We can look around at the, the mountains themselves and go, those used to not be there. Right? Now, with this, the ark rested. The Spirit of God notes that the ark rested on the 17th day. Now, it is no coincidence, surely, that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead on the very same day of the very same month. Having passed through the waters of judgment, he stood in resurrection upon the earth. Thus we find our rest in him, not in a Jewish Sabbath. Now think about that for a minute. That's neat. That's neat stuff. Now, I want to give you some of the, well, how do you know that, Pastor Joe? Well, how do you know that, Mr. Dr. Uh, Phillips over here? Well, in Exodus, the seventh month was changed later on in the, uh, to the first month, which was known as Abib, then later after the captivity, Babylonian captivity, that is, to Nisan, right? Now, we're not talking about the car, right? We're talking about the Jewish month. On the 10th day of the month of Nisan, during Jesus' day, right, the lamb was selected and killed on the 14th day. How many day? what day did Jesus get up? If he dies on the 14th. Third day, what are we talking? 17. And look at that. Killed on the 14th day and the Lord Jesus would have been raised on the 17th. What does this tell us? Now you could say we're reading too much into this passage. You might be right. But I'm going to go with this. You know why? Because this continues to show us from the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1 to the end of Revelation 22, the focus is the Gospel. The focus is the promised seed who came, who died, who rose again to make all things new. The gospel has always been the focus. It's the focus in the old. It's the focus in the new. We find redemption story. The Bible is not a mixture of just hodgepodge little uh, you know, bedtime stories. These are, not, these are not bedtime stories. This is God's breathed that word that flows from verse to verse, chapter to chapter, book to book, that all points to the personal work of Jesus Christ. The Gospel is the focus of God's redemptive story. This is His one big picture. This is His one big goal. Uh, I, I would recommend to you, if you got kids, grandkids that are, that are younger, that want a Bible, there's a great um, series of books, and they also do Bibles as well for kids. It's called the the one big story. The whole thing that they do, everything in the study Bible, all the books, is it has the Christ connection. What's God doing in the big story of redemption? Why does this matter? Because ultimately, everything is pointing us to who? To Jesus, right? Now, this is also important. Let's focus on this, all right? An eternity past to eternity future, we've got the Lord's plan. We've got the Gospel. We've got redemption. All of it is interwoven and intertwined by the personal work of Jesus Christ. We find the the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit from eternity to eternity working out our salvation past, present, and future to make a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more curse and we can enjoy God and His presence forever and forever without fear of sinning against Him or destruction ever again. All of this Is by God's grace. Creation, God's grace. The flood, God's grace. After the flood, God's grace. Babel, God's grace. Right? We find over and over your very life, from the moment you came into the world to the day that you leave this world behind, it is all of God's grace. It is a free gift of His grace. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Without grace, the gospel isn't the gospel. Without grace, the gospel has no good news. Without grace, there is nothing, right? We find that this is God's plan. This is God's will. And it reveals to us the glory of God, the goal of God, the character of God. This tells us ultimately who God is, what He's like, what He's done, what He's doing, what He's going to do. And it's found in the gospel from this. God did not make a mistake in having the ark rest on such a day. There is no rest for any man or woman outside of resting in the Ark of Christ. There is no rest for us outside of the boat. There is no rest for us outside of the gospel. Now and forever. Right? Now the location is given, but it is not truly known, nor can it be truly known, nor does it truly matter as we've talked about. Now, as we continue on here, verses six to twelve. He says, and it came to pass at the end of the 40 days. So notice this. He's waiting and waiting and waiting. He's still not off the boat. Right? Some of us, if we spend a week with a, our family on vacation, right? There's a reason why family reunions happen once a year. And there's a reason why my family never got invited. It's a good. good thing is this isn't live stream. My, my nana, they all watch. That's all right. They didn't invite us. I don't know what to Talk to them about it. It's all right. (laughs) Am I not invitable? Look at me. It came to pass at the end of the 40 days. Remember, this is a certain period of judgment and time that God is working through. Noah is continuing to now. Notice this. God is building Noah's character and faith here. You and I are not a patient people. We are often not a faithful people. You and I saw that the waters are getting lower. I'm ready to hop on a, on, a, on a dinghy and I'm getting out there. I'm going to find something. I'm paddling, right? God says, be still. Be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted. What we find is that even in the middle of all this, God is continuing to build Noah's character. God cared more about building Noah's character and faith than He did about building the boat. If there was no character in faith, there would have been no boat, right? So we find what God is doing here to get him off the boat. He's doing a greater work. Now at the end of the 40 days, what we find is that Noah begins to test the waters, if you will, not by jumping in the waters, but rather by staying in the boat and sending forth out these animals that God has provided for him to do just this work, to go out. Think about this. God picked in this passage that particular raven Out of the hundreds of thousands of ravens and birds in in the world at that time to do this specific job, all the rest of them died. That's pretty big, isn't it? There was a bunch of other doves in the world, weren't there? And God picked that one. Now this might sound far-stretched. You might think this is feel-goody. And it might sound that way, especially considering who I am and how I normally preach. But God has chosen you for a specific reason. You were, uh, we are alive today because God has entrusted us with these days. We weren't born way back when because we weren't. God wanted us around today, for today. God has given you your family, your job, your bank account, your pew, right? Your money, your, your your everything for a specific reason. Let's not waste it, right? Salhammer writes, at the end of the 40 days, Noah begins to look for further signs that his deliverance has come to an end. He sent on a raven in verse 7, a dove, verses 8 to 12, but there are no signs of dry land at this point. Patiently, Noah waits. In verses 10 and 12, these are seen. When the sign of dry land finally appears and the dove does not return. That's the key. The author reminds us that Noah has waited exactly a year. Even then, Noah can only open the window and look outside the ark. He still must wait for God's command to leave. That's coming when we get into verses fifteen through seventeen. All right. That won't be in this one. Hamilton writes, Noah must now determine whether the waters have receded sufficiently for dry land to reappear. To find out, Noah sends out the first raven, then a dove, twice. God does not tell Noah when the ground has dried out, even though he did tell him about when the flood would start and exactly how to build the ark. Here, Noah moves from being the passive recipient of revelation to being the active instigator of what and when the next move is. Now, the raven does not return because... As a carrion eater, it is able to feed on the animal corpses on the mountaintops. The dove, by contrast, is a valley bird that feeds off food in the lower areas, the last to dry out. This is why it returns to the ark. Now, we get into all this for something that's important tonight. Waiting on the Lord is not inactivity. But sometimes being active is not waiting on the Lord. You can run around like a chicken with the head cut off and not accomplish anything for God. Sometimes you can be the most active one in the boat. You can be the most active one trying to get out of the boat. You can be the most active one and still not being able to accomplish anything for God. Why? It's God's will that we would move when he says move. It's God's will that we would learn to trust him in the boat. People look at the, you know, Peter having the faith to walk on the water. You know what Jesus had told them beforehand? I will meet you on the other side. Hit didn't say, about halfway I want you to get out that boat and see if you can walk on it. He didn't say it. Faith, you say, well, faith could walk outside of the boat and look to Jesus and then when, when He stopped looking, faith stayed in the boat. Faith would have kept rowing until they reached the other side. We find that we have substituted waiting on the Lord and trusting the Lord for I've got to do something in order to prove that I trust God, trust God and He'll use you to do something for Him. The faith comes before this. right? We want the activity with our hands because we want to say, look at what I did. We want to take credit for the boat. We can't. Because what we found in this whole passage in Noah's life is that God provided it all by His grace. Period. Each work that Noah does, he does by grace, through faith, trusting and looking to God's promise, provision, and presence to command Him. That must be the life of the Christian. So, there's two extremes here in the Christian life, right? And we'll be done in just a sec. There's the one extreme of going, I'm saved, and that's all I need, so I'm not going to do a thing. Oh, pastor said there's a sign-up sheet in the back. Ha <laughs> ha! That's funny, pastor. Tell us another joke. That's a good one! <laughs> and none of y'all... None of y'all laugh like that. None of, we, none of us say that. We know there's an opportunity to get involved. We know there's a need, but we just go, you know, that's just not my thing. That's one extreme. That's a bad one. But then there's the other one. This is the one that goes, I'm going to work myself to death to prove to God and everybody else that I am a Christian and a good one at that, right? And I get so busy trying to please man and so busy trying to do ministry that I never actually do ministry. That's not good. This one complains, nobody ever signs up except for me. Yeah, because you're filling all the slots. And now you're doing them halfway. Now you're tired. Now you're drained out. And you're not being ministered to because you're trying to do all the ministering. But now there's no real ministry getting done. Extreme, extreme. God says, I want you to work. Come back Sunday. We're talking about the Sabbath day. We're going to talk about work. All right? We're going to talk about what that means. So come back Sunday. We're going to talk more about this. God has designed us to work. We talked about this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. However, He's designed us to rest. Rest in what? His work. To rest in Him. And as well, we must have our will submitted to His will. It might not be, it might not be God's will that you do every single thing on that back table to sign up for it is God's will you do something, right? We find that it's God's will that we would do what He calls us to do and to give Him back the talents that He's given to us. And we find that waiting on the Lord is perhaps the most active thing that a Christian can do. We think waiting means ceasing from all activity, but rather waiting is activity. In order to wait on the Lord, my eyes have to be up looking to Him for direction, right? Right? My ears have to be open, listening for His Word. And my shoes have to be on, ready to move. Right? Much like when the children of Israel on the night of the Passover, how did they eat their meal? Do you remember? They had their shoes on, their belt on, and their staff in their hand. Why? Because as they ate, which is normally a time of leisure in their culture, and a time of rest and waiting, they were waiting for God's command to move. So perhaps the greatest way that we can be active for the Lord is learning to wait on the Lord. This is what God has for Noah. This is what God has for us. Obedience by faith knows how to actively wait on the Lord. Obedience by obligation in flesh does not wait on the Lord. It just does its own thing and say, God, look at how I'm serving you. Look at how I'm serving God. Everybody, does everybody see how I'm serving God? Does everybody see me? That's what the flesh does. That's not what God wants. Abiding in Christ leads to action for Christ. We abide in Christ. We are active in Christ. And the only way we abide in Christ and are active in Christ is by grace of Christ and faith in Christ. Outside of that, we will get nothing done for the Lord. Now the dove and the olive leaf continue to symbolize peace to this day, don't they? You know why? God had that planned. matter of fact, if you look at Israel's a flag and all of their many other things you still see a dove and olive leaf you still see all these talks about these things why because it still holds that we talk about today have you hey when are you going to extend the olive branch to so and so right it's this idea of bringing reconciliation why god has just crushed his creation yet at the same time he's done so to reconcile it unto himself that's who god is that's what god does How fitting after God has made a violent war with His creation and against all rebels that now He's saying there's peace. Who's there peace to? Those that are in the boat. There was no peace for those outside of it. But those inside the boat now see a literal, physical, this is peace. There is peace for those in the boat. And it is the future hope of all that trust in the personal work of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God now and forever. And here's how we know. He says one day we shall see Him face to face. That's peace. The moment you see the Lord, peace. Can't imagine what that's going to be like. Amen? Alright, well tonight, here's, here's what I'd like to do. Something a little different since this is...